0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. 17 senators from both parties are asking for hazard pay for federal employees responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. Democrat Chris Van Hollen and Republican Susan Collins are the lead signers of a letter to Acting Office of Management and Budget Director Russ Vogt and acting Office of Personnel Management Director Mike Regis. The letter also says agencies and workers should have more clear guidance on telework. The Defense Department should get rid of the office of the chief management officer and replace it with something else, according to the Defense Business Board. The 15-member board adopted the recommendation unanimously. Defense News reports the board makes three recommendations to replace the CMO office, including splitting the office of the Deputy Secretary of Defense into two jobs, one for strategy and policy and the other for resources and management. New nominations for the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board are getting complaints about politics invading the TSP. President Trump has candidates to replace three of the five board members. GovExec reports all three board members the president wants to replace voted recently to change the ifund international index in the tsp to a product that invests more heavily in china the coronavirus's changes to the way governments working could be an opportunity to reshape the way the government works post virus three government experts are looking at how to do that effectively bob mcdonald is former secretary of the department of veterans affairs he's writing in the harvard business review along with Douglas Conant and Andrew Marshall. Bob, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on. What is your sense of the steps that leaders should be taking today to build more leaders for a post-corona environment?
1: Well, Francis, for those of us in the Partnership for Public Service, there is nothing more important than building the leaders of the federal government. Uh, Fully 50 percent of the senior executive service is eligible to retire this year. And if we lose that leadership, uh, we're, we're gonna really struggle. Uh, we, one can see during this coronavirus uh, impact, the importance of the long-term leaders of the federal government in telling truth to the American people. So we're, we think it's very important to develop uh, leadership uh, within the federal government that
0: will sustain itself over a long time. You've got four big principles here, Bob, that uh, you believe will do that. And I want to talk about each of them in terms of what, who has to do what in order to develop them. I think they're all principles that everybody agrees are necessary for leadership in the federal government in the future. But I want to focus on your experience and knowing where to go to to get these resources to help people. The first one is becoming self-aware. What develops that self-awareness in a leader in the public sector setting? And is it different than in the private sector?
1: Well, I, I'm not sure we said in the opening, but uh, I spent 33 years with the Procter & Gamble Company, one of the most admired companies in the world, and uh, I retired as CEO and chairman. And certainly one of the scarcest resources we had uh, in business is leadership. And I, and I found that to be true when I was at uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs, which is the second largest department in government. Now, the question you ask about becoming self-aware, there are a number of steps you can take, and, and both the management as well as the individual own these steps. Uh, self-reflection is one of them. Uh, we learned in the, um, we, we wrote about in the Harvard Business Review article that Doug Conant, my co-author, uh, had set aside time each morning for him to reflect on his leadership when he was leading the Campbell Soup Company. Uh, Authenticity is another one now for authenticity that means you have to be in touch with your belief system you have to know what your belief system is I for 25 years I wrote up a list of my leadership beliefs and I would always give it out to the organizations that I was working with Uh, third is emotional intelligence and this is where your manager your peers can become helpful 360-degree feedback is helpful you really need to have some empathy for the context in which you're leading. Uh, Stan McChrystal just wrote a book about leadership uh, and he talked about the importance of context to the success of a leader. Uh, Integrity, uh, following moral and ethical principles is is key to uh, becoming self-aware. Oftentimes those are the values of the organization. And last but not least is continuous learning. Uh, One of the things I've said uh, throughout my careers in business and in government is to be successful long term, you really have to be an insatiable learner. You have to work hard to learn new things. And as those of us age and have more and more experience, uh, we tend to repeat the same things over and over again and become less willing to learn. So you really have to force yourself to learn new things.
0: The second item that you and your colleagues write about is engaging others, and that's a topic we've covered on the program on a number of occasions. So I want to move because of time to the third item and that is leading change a lot of the people that I've spoken to that worked for you at the Department of Veterans Affairs praise the way that you led change in the time that you were there what do you think the key to that success was
1: well leading change is, is always difficult whether it's in business or government but you have to have a an insatiable desire to uh, improve results in my case I entered a crisis Uh, there were veterans in phoenix not getting the care they deserved Uh, we quickly worked together to put together a a team a guiding coalition put together a 90-day plan uh, and importantly put together a vision and vision is is one of the very important steps to leading change you have to formulate and communicate a vision people want hope they want to be part of something uh, that's bigger than themselves and that's successful and you have to create that vision. Our vision at the Department of Veterans Affairs was to be the leading federal government agency for customer service. Um, secondly, not only does the leader create that vision, but the leader's got to create that vision by engaging others. And we talked about the importance of engaging others. You have to influence others, you have to persuade others this is a good vision. I took a lot of steps where I traveled constantly, I met with stakeholders. Uh, As you may know, even in my first national press conference, I gave out my cell phone number. I wanted to be accessible. I wanted to be able to share this vision, get input from constituents and stakeholders about that vision. Um, Next, you have to create innovation and creativity. Uh, We had some best-in-class methods of of running hospitals. Uh, Unfortunately, they tended to stay at the hospital they were developed at. We created a a team that was responsible for taking best practices and moving them throughout our nearly 2000 points of care. Next, I would say embrace risk and uh, uncertainty. Uh, Nothing's gonna work perfectly. Change tends to be uh, a a meandering process and you have to be willing to accept that, build on that that risk and uh, build on that uncertainty And then last but not least, but I think really importantly, is adaptability. Uh, Many people say that Charles Darwin said uh, when he talked about survival, he talked about survival of the fittest. But I think what he actually said and what I believe in through my years in business and in government is survival of the most adaptable. There's no question that the the marketplace is going to change around you. Uh, In 1955, the first year of the Fortune 500, Uh, There were 50 companies. Of those 50 companies in 1955, only nine exist today. 41 weren't adaptable. Uh, Fortunately, the Procter & Gamble Company was on that list in
0: 1955 and is today. Bob, the last item that you and Doug and Andrew write about is achieving results. And unfortunately, we're out of time, but I'd love to have you come back and spend an entire segment just talking about achieving and especially measuring those results. Thanks very much for joining me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Francis. Great to be with you.
0: Up next, guarding patient information while guarding patient health. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a new look at best practices for doing both. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Agencies like the Defense Health Agency and Department of Veterans Affairs are caring for patients with all kinds of health challenges during the coronavirus pandemic. The Defense Department Inspector General's office explains some best practices for handling patient health information and personally identifiable information during the pandemic. Carol Gorman's Assistant Inspector General for Audit of Cyberspace Operations in the Office of the Inspector General at the Department of Defense. Carol, thanks very much for joining me today. As I look through this list, of best practices, it strikes me these are the basic kinds of blocking, tackling things that we've been talking about in cyberspace for years, um, making sure that passwords are safe and complex using uh, two-factor authentication and so on. Is this best practices list from your office necessary, do you think, because you're seeing weaknesses as you looked at, at different uh, aspects, or are you, you just want to make sure that these organizations don't backslide into weaknesses again?
2: primarily the backslide um, what we you know our expectation during the, the COVID-19 pandemic was that the number of visits to military treatment facilities and the number the amount of patient care would increase and therefore we wanted to issue a document very quickly that provided those MTFs our military treatment facilities with with lessons learned and best practices concerning the protection of patient health care information
0: in, in the work that you put out, you looked at four pieces of work, two from your office and two from the Government Accountability Office. Were there common threads among those four pieces of work that you uh, that you drew these best practices from, Carol?
2: Yeah, so we reviewed those, those four uh, previously issued reports looking for systemic weaknesses that were discussed across the four reports. And that's how we came up with our list of best practices and lessons learned to be implemented just for the the military treatment facilities and the management and the chief information officers just to remain vigilant in protecting patient health care information
0: i read eight best practices and we don't have time to talk about each of them i wonder if there are some of these eight that in your review you discovered the various organizations are pretty good at handling this one or the other or this one or the other seems the most likely to potentially backslide and become a weakness again
2: Well, I I think with the increase in um, um, patients coming into the military treatment facilities, one of the things we found in one of the previous reports was the access to systems and configuring them to to lock automatically after 15 minutes. The healthcare providers, of course, have to have access to the systems and the information that's available on, on their network. And oftentimes, just as um, an ease of being able to access that information, there would not be a configuration for having those systems to lock automatically. So that was one of our findings in, in both when we looked at all services across the board, Army, Navy, and the Air Force. And so that's one of those things that could slide again if you increase the amount of patients that you're seeing because it's easier if the system's just always up and running instead of locking and then you have to re-password to get in, into the system.
0: Are there some of these eight carol that you think that the organizations that you assessed or the work that you did as going through these four reports that the organizations are really doing pretty well and just a reminder please keep doing that well
2: yeah yes yeah. So certainly with managing your network vulnerability program and that's putting patches um on and making updates to the system as necessary that's just one of the ones we found that just the reminders and the systems administrators and chief information officers at those treatment facilities needed to just make pay more attention to make sure that was done um, in a timely manner.
0: Are there any of these that are different or should be applied differently in the health provision space, as opposed to other areas of mission delivery across the department? Or uh, are these pretty basically and uh, pretty uh, high priorities um regardless of what the function is of the organization that's implementing them
2: it's across the board and and every organization should um certainly pay attention and and make sure that their uh user community is is complying with um using strong passwords and that the the systems administrators are making sure that the vulnerabilities known vulnerabilities are are mitigated and and access is limited to the systems and networks and, and, and that the appropriate users have the appropriate access to those systems. So it's, it's a basic list, but what we wanted to do, and, and we, we re- reviewed the previous audit reports that we did, uh, along with the General uh, Government Accountability Office, and, and wanted to just pull out what we saw as weaknesses previously, just as a reminder, make sure with the in- increased amount of patient uh, patients coming into those facilities, don't let this this slip and, and remain vigilant.
0: Carol, we have about 30 seconds left. What are you going to watch moving forward in all of this?
2: Well, we plan on doing um, a, a, some, uh, announcing some additional work having to do with, with healthcare and having to do with IT systems in association with the, the, the pandemic. So we will be announcing approximately three additional audits within the next couple of weeks or so, looking at actual issues specific to COVID-19 pandemic and the increase in in purchasing IT equipment and telework uh, for one. So so we will be announcing those shortly.
0: Carol, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you.
0: Up next, the relief for contractors in the CARES Act and the problems those vendors might face. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what you need to know about reimbursements. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Section 3610 of the CARES Act provides some relief for government contractors during the coronavirus, but the cash flow to the program could limit the cash flow to companies. Stan Soloway is president and CEO of Solero Strategy. Stan, thanks very much for coming on. What issues are you seeing so far with the way the money's going out to companies through the CARES Act?
3: Well, I think we need to separate a couple of things out. The the, the CARES Act itself is not the appropriation that provides all the funding. The, fun, the cares act section 3610 authorizes agencies to compensate contractors for re- essentially extended personal leave or sick leave because people are unable to work due to the coronavirus due to access to the locations and so forth so the actual appropriation is separate and that's actually one of the challenges um the money in the cares act goes to there, there's money in there for specific responses to the virus but not directly to, to compensate for work that can't get done um, but in answer to your question um, it, which is a really important question. We're actually just now starting to see companies uh, engage with their contracting officers to figure out how best to implement the, the, the authorities in 3610. So it's a little early to say whether we're having major challenges or not. It's we're really literally just getting started the last couple of weeks. And only in the last couple of weeks have we seen the guidance come out of OMB, GSA, and the Defense Department. But there are some conflicts in the guidance themselves. There some inconsistencies between the departments. Uh, and I think a number of implementation challenges that we still have to work through. Uh, and then DOD itself is coming out uh, with more guidance uh, over sometime in the next two to three weeks. So we're far from being done with um, the how, um, but we're not yet at and we're not yet at enough experience to see how it's actually gone.
0: What are the statements or the policies that you see that are at odds with each other that you referred to a moment ago, Stan?
3: So there's a couple of things uh, for the Defense Department, for instance, they are making the 3610 authority effective in January when the uh, national pandemic was declared whereas the uh, civilian agencies OMB and GSA have in their guidance uh, declared March uh, a march date that the bill was actually passed as the effective date so different implementation dates there's also some different treatment in the bill uh, in the in the guidance around um, how you actually assess what's uh, what's compensable so if you think about it in terms of the defense department has taken the legislation at its word and said, there's for instance, no profit and no fee can be, can be included in the compensation. But when you look at the GSA uh, 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 guidance, GSA is a little bit more flexible on this, for rea- not because they necessarily are interested in paying people a bunch of fee for not doing work, but because it's so complicated to unbundle and unpack all the schedule contracts and all the time and materials contracts um, that they're trying to be realistic. And so they have language say, to the maximum extent, practical. So how you negotiate that. And the third thing that I'll just mention on this that, that is not necessarily in conflict in the, in the various guidances, but is an area that would be very interesting to watch over the next um, month or two or even beyond, is the term in the legislation that says uh, pending the availability of funds. In other words, you are authorized to compensate contractors for this situation pending the, uh, or assuming the availability of funds. That is being interpreted somewhat differently by different people. Some people assume, well, if you have a program that's funded and the fund been appropriated, the funds are available. Others are saying, well, if I have to stop work on the program and it's going to cause me to have a delay and extend the length of the program before it's completed, I don't have the money to do both of those things. So are the funds actually available? So there's going to be some definitional challenges and there may be some significant negotiations still to take place.
0: What's the fix? Is this, does this require, in your view, a legislative remedy, or does it require somebody in the executive branch to say, "No, this is how everybody's going to do it this way from now on"? And is that possible, given that the—I mean—the sources that you've said this guidance is coming from—OMB, Pentagon, GSA—you know—they're pretty important organizations, all three of them. Yeah. So, so I
3: guess my own preference would be to keep Congress out of this at this point. Um, some of this is legislative drafting, and given all that's going on and, and, and the very <laughs> the mere difficulty of getting Congress in session to do something in the near term, so i, I, I leave that alone. I don't think that's necessary. You would like to think that, that OMB, GSA, and DOD could come up with an absolutely common interpretation of the bill and, and road forward. That would be the logical and obvious answer, but to the extent they can't or don't, uh, then we're going to have unevenness and inconsistencies. But the issue on the availability of funds, by the way, is not just, uh, it's not necessarily how it's treated in the guidance. My, my sense is that it's going to be interpreted differently by different contracting officers, different contracting offices. And so you're going to have that kind of disparity.
0: We have about a minute left, Stan. What's your sense of what will happen in the next couple weeks slash months when people start going back to the office and working from the office again? What are you going to pay attention to as that unfolds?
3: Yeah, I think the biggest issue there, Francis, really is the question of employee risk management. And you can define that fairly broadly. Uh, so it's going to be levels of comfort the companies have. with the protections in place for their folks at the work site, employee comfort with the protections available to them at the work site, questions around travel. Um, a lot of people, as you know, they are commuting regularly from here to military bases to work with IT shops or wherever it might be. The extent to which that still curtailed, how you manage that and still deliver and. And, and work effectively with your customers. And then, in the broader sense and in, in the longer term sense, I'm really going to be fascinated to see how this several months of, of forced teleworking does or does not change the culture around teleworking. I know a number of companies are already having conversations, some of them I'm involved with, uh, where they're talking about we, we really need to start rethinking our, our, our footprint. That maybe with this teleworking is obviously forced and for horrible reasons now, but it's opened our eyes to different ways. Of, to uh, do business going forward. So that longer-term trend will be very interesting to watch.
0: Stan Soloway, thanks as always, my friend. Best to Kathy. Appreciate you being on today.
3: Thanks, Francis. You take care.
0: If you missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You can get the program every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. We're back in two minutes.